It's always a, a pleasure to come to Carol. I've been uh, treated so uh, grand here, and you've been so encouraging, and uh, I thank you for that. I'm glad that I was able to bring my wife today. This is the first time that she's uh, accompanied me since uh, I've been coming over here. I wrestled. I I go through my sermons. I don't write very many new sermons anymore except when I'm supposed to preach in chapel. Uh, This sermon uh, this morning I landed on and I can't get rid of the gnawing feeling that I may have preached it here before. I've kind of narrowed it down to two sermons. It was one of them. (laughs) If you've heard it before, you just keep quiet, okay? (laughs) Because it really speaks to me every time I preach it. Because a few years ago, I had the, the most serious illness that I've ever had. And I was laid up most of the summer. And I was scheduled to preach at my previous church, Kingsway Church in Omaha. And I didn't think I could do it. But while I was sick, I was overwhelmed by the subject of wisdom. I just was bombarded with things about wisdom. And I thought, well, if I could preach, I should write a sermon on wisdom. And I I did that. And it was the strangest experience I guess I've ever had in writing a sermon. Because I wrote it flat on my back. And if you had my original notes, you could see where the writing was, was faded and I'd have to turn the pen up the right way and then continue and basically I just asked three questions and as I would ask a question the answer would come especially the last two questions so I I want to share that with you this morning And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from Proverbs chapter 4, 1 through 10. Hear, O son, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one on the side of my mother... He taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. 
She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. And I really like that uh, verse uh, that says a garland of grace and a crown of splendor. That's the way the NIV has it. And when I read that, I got to thinking. And first of all, I thought, how would Virginia look in a a garland of grace and a crown of splendor? We have a beautiful daughter named Jennifer. And I thought, how would Jennifer look in a garland of grace and a crown of splendor? And then I thought of my two uh, big uh, strapping sons. How would they look in a garland of grace and a crown of splendor? And then I thought of all of us, all my family. How would we look in a garland of grace and a crown of splendor? I don't know what that looks like, but I love the sound of it. And that's the promise if we have wisdom. So my first question was, what is wisdom? Well, we'll talk about what it isn't. It isn't being real smart, having a lot of knowledge and up on all the latest technology. My favorite definition of wisdom outside of Scripture is this. It's looking at life from God's point of view. How much of my life, all my life, every aspect of my life. Proverbs 5.21 says, For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all of his paths. Do you believe that's true? If it is, and I live all my life in full view of the Lord, then I see my life as He sees it. How would God see my marriage this morning? My family relationships. How I handle the tests and the trials that that life brings. What about money? and financial things? How about my health and the way I take care of my body? What does that look like from God's point of view? What about my work, my ethics, my citizenship, my ministry, my sexuality? How would God see that today? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is the textbook definition, of course. To have understanding is to shun evil. Understanding is to have knowledge of the evil one. And the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Second question. How do you become wise? Well, you ask for it. You even plead for it, the Bible says. You beg God to give it to you. You seek it like you would seek a vast treasure, though it costs all you have. 
You hang out with people who are wise. You study and read carefully and observe intensely the lives of people who have lived well. And if you did that, you would surely come to the Apostle Paul. You would read things, uh, the cry of his heart, I love so much in Philippians. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. This man had a, a, a resume that would stand up to anybody's of his day. And he gave it all up. And his life proclaimed that nothing that he lost could even compare to the greatness of knowing Christ his Lord. I have lost everything and I count it nothing. No, I count it less than nothing because I have gained Christ. One of my preaching students said in his sermon, today we're... Uh, up with all sorts of things, uh, all sorts of cool things, and stamp Jesus on it, but it looks just like the world. There's nothing about the Apostle Paul that looked like the world. Nothing. Maybe if you wanted to hang out with a wise person, you would pick Scott Peck. And you would find these words in his book, The Road Less Traveled. There seem to be many people I know who possess a vision of personal evolution, yet seem to lack the will for it. They want and believe it's possible to skip over discipline and find an easy shortcut to spiritual maturity. They are unable to acknowledge that they are still children and face the painful fact that they must start at the beginning and go through the middle. Now, folks, we like to avoid the middle, don't we? All of us, all of us have heard our better angels speak to us and say, wouldn't you like to come up higher? Wouldn't you like to do things you've never done? Wouldn't you like to go places you've never been, breathe air that you've never breathed? And we think, oh, yes. Oh, that sounds so good. I would love to do things I've never done. I'd love to go places I've never been. I'd love to breathe air that I've never breathed. And we start out, and we do quite well for a little bit. And then comes the middle, where it gets hard. I don't know of anything in this life in the area of excellence that may be achieved without going through the discipline, the choice, the intention, purpose, and sacrifice of the middle. Friday, 
I relived this again in a couple of my students who have found it so hard in the middle. We know about that. And because the middle is hard, we often settle for mediocrity. We settle for less than is offered. A mediocre life and a mediocre marriage and a mediocre family and a mediocre ministry. What a tragedy it is that when we get in the middle, then we shout down the voices of our better angels. And we tell them, here's why it's okay for me to be mediocre, average, less than my best. I uh, sometimes in my Acts class, I'll leave a few minutes at the end of a lecture and divide the kids up into groups. And I'll have a five or six discussion questions or thoughts for them. One time I, and then I like to just kind of walk among them and listen to them. It's one of my favorite parts of, of class is to do that. And one of the questions, or one of the leading discussion things was, my greatest concern is, and they would fill it in. And I'm walking around, and this boy, this young man doesn't know I'm listening to him. He says, my greatest fear, my greatest concern is that I might settle for living a mediocre life. It was all I could do to keep from tackling him. It's all I could do to keep from running up to him and, and hugging him. And, and, and just, it just brought me so much joy. When we get, or when we talk about the middle, then uh, maybe we could listen to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says about discipline. Discipline is called for in the middle. Discipline exists for what seems its very opposite, for freedom, almost extravagance. Discipline exists for what seems its very opposite, for freedom, almost extravagance. And I thought, I thought when, when I read that, I thought about a track and field athlete years ago named Bob Mathias. Bob Mathias went to the Olympics uh, to become, it was his desire to become the youngest person to ever win the gold medal in the decathlon. Those grueling tra track and field events, 10 of them. And he won it. 
A 17-year-old kid won it. And then four years later, he aspired to be the only one to win it back to back. And he went to the Olympics and he won it again. First one to ever do it. He spoke at this sports uh, gala uh, one time and somebody came up to him just so thrilled to meet him and to talk to him and said, Mr. Matthias, I'd give anything if I could win a gold medal at the Olympics. And Bob Matthias said, son, would you give it 10,000 hours? Because that's what it cost me to win it. Discipline, freedom, almost extravagance. There is uh, advanced decision-making in discipline. There is delaying one's gratification. I tried my best to get my students to believe this. It's a law, I think, that you pay first and play later. You pay first and play later. We've got some kids over there right now who are in a panic mode because they played first and now they're paying later. And when you play first and pay later, the payment later is way, way more than it would have been if you'd paid up front. A sergeant major and his wife came to see me. And it's a long story. I'll just say they had been married for 17 years and it had not been good. After five years, the woman said to him, couldn't we go see somebody? Couldn't we get some help? I know marriage could be better than this. Couldn't we see somebody? He's the kind of guy that never complimented his wife, never brought her any flowers or a box of chocolates or wrote a romantic note to her, nothing. Five years later, she said, couldn't we get some help? Couldn't we go see somebody? He said, just like he had said the first, you need help, you go get help. Everything's just fine with me. The government sent him to Korea on a year's remote assignment, and while he was gone, she went to school, and she took some classes, and she heard people say things to her like, my, you look good today. That's a pretty dress you're wearing. You know what you said in class today? It was so good. I couldn't say it that way, but you did such a good job. And she felt things beginning to come alive in her that she thought were dead. And when he came home, she said, goodbye. I don't want you anymore. I don't love you anymore. I want you out of my life. Guess what? All of a sudden, he loved her more than anything. And you should have heard him right in my office. He got down on his knees. And he looked up at her and said, if you'll give me one more chance, I promise you I'll make you the happiest woman that ever lived on the face of this earth. And he wrote love notes and he wrote love poems. If he had only been willing to pay up front, he could have paid it. 
He could have paid it then, but he waited till later until the debt was so high that there was no way to pay it. It's that way in parenting. You meet parents that do anything now, if they could just do something, if that daughter or that son would just come back. But the payment got too high. If we only pay up front, can do it. Those are all things that have to do with the middle. We have to start at the beginning, pay the price in the middle, and come out on the other side with freedom in all kinds of ways, almost extravagance. Well, I could hang out with James. He'd teach you a lot about how to handle the tests and the trials that come in life, perseverance and all that. And of course, Jesus, just about everything Jesus said was about wisdom and doing the right thing. The Sermon on the Mount ended with that great, great word picture about building your house on the sand or building it on a rock. If you build it on the sand, it'll fall because storms are going to come. They are going to come. But if you build it on a rock, it will stand. I don't know how much trouble it took you to get to church today. But I'll tell you this, it'll be worth it. If when you go out those doors, you absolutely know where you're building your house. Well, the third question. Now, this is the one that thrilled me the most. I'm laying on my back, and I'm writing, and so here's my third question. How do you know if you're a wise person? The answer was just like that. You take seriously the things God Take seriously. Okay. What are those things? Again. Five answers just came. The plight of poor people. The plight of poor people. You read this book and you will not be able to get away from the fact that God takes the plight of poor people very, very seriously. He was speaking to the son of King Josiah in in the book of uh, Jeremiah 22. And he's comparing the two. Josiah was a great king. His son was horrible. His son was all about riches and and me and I and all that stuff. And God said to him, your father had riches. Your father had food and drink and had what he needed. But here's the difference between you and your father. He defended the cause of the poor. And then, folks, 
he adds this word. Is that not what it means to know me? I want to say that again. I'm still, that, that, that little piece of that verse got a hold of me and, and, it, and it had never let me go. Is that not what it means to know me? Your father defended the cause of the poor. Is that not what it means to know me? Yeah. The second thing, the answer was the plight of the lost. God takes the plight of lost people so seriously. The third answer, interpersonal relationships, especially forgiveness. He takes those so seriously. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that none of you miss the grace of God and that no root of bitterness spring up and by it many become defiled. He takes interpersonal relationships dead serious. The fourth one was stewardship. Stewardship. There again, read this book cover to cover and you'll find that God takes stewardship so seriously. And then the last one was discipleship. Discipleship. And I thought of the hard sayings of Jesus that are in Luke 14. Unless, uh, if anyone's closer to you than I am, even your own flesh and blood, you can't be my disciple. I have to be first. Unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And your cross isn't your husband or your wife or somebody else. My favorite definition of carrying your cross and taking it up daily is whatever it takes today to keep Jesus first in my life. That's my cross. I take it up every day and follow it. And then... Verse 33, that really interesting one, it says, unless you give up all your possessions, you can't be my disciple. I didn't deal with that the way I should have one time, and somebody really rushed up to me after I'd spoken and said, well, how can that work? How can that work? Give away all our possessions? What? what? How, how could that be? And I said, well, okay, here's what that means to me I illustrate it by Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac and he was going to do it he was going to do it he had the knife raised and was going to do it and God stops him now when Abraham came down off of Moriah 
he still had all his flocks and herds. He still had all his servants. He still had his wife, Sarah. And he still had his beloved son, Isaac. But he didn't possess any of them. He didn't possess any of them. That's what that means. We give up possession of all our things. He will not likely ask you to give them all away. If he did, it's because he has something better for you. He wants us to give up ownership of our possessions. Discipleship's very, very serious to God. Now, I tell my preaching students that no sermon is over until you ask the people to do something great. So I'm going to ask you to do something great with this sermon. It might have to do with the poor. Another great moment for me after I preached this sermon in a church not too far from here. I'm standing back by the door greeting people. And a man comes running, almost running by me, stops just long enough to grab my hand and say, David, I know a single mother of three kids and I'm on my way to give her a hundred dollars. You see, he got it. He got it. Can't help all the poor, neither can you. But what would happen if we Christians helped the one that's on our radar? The one we know about. The one that's kind of close. Yeah. And maybe the great thing you'll do today with this sermon is start praying for somebody again that you've stopped praying for that's lost and outside of Christ. Maybe you'll invite them to a service. Maybe you'll, you'll pray harder than you've ever prayed. And then could be an interpersonal relationship and it's time to let go of that bitterness and that grudge because it hasn't done one thing to help you. And maybe today is the day you lay it down. It could have something to do with stewardship and you might start giving according to your blessings. And then it could be discipleship where you say to somebody, what can I do to help? I want to get involved. I want my life to count. Well, Wisdom is not knowing. Wisdom is doing. Now, when I 
I'm at the point now where I want to close the sermon. So I ask, what, what story or what illustration might I use to kind of tie this together at the end and bring it to a close? And again, very quickly, the answer came. And I thought about those little children in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, who were shot by a madman with a gun. And especially I thought of two girls, one named Barbie and one Carrie. I thought in my mind, what does it look like in an Amish home? Getting the kids ready to go to school? Do they go through the kinds of things that other people do? Borrow each other's clothes? Or do it without asking? It is all, what, what? I don't know. I just wanted to picture how it was that day that they went to school. And it wasn't long till they found themselves in the presence of this madman with a gun. If you've ever read what all he took to school that day, it absolutely blows you away. But when these two girls realized what was up, they came up with a plan. One of them said, shoot me first. And the other one said, shoot me second. Because they believed if they laid down their life that maybe the smaller children would be saved. And he shot them. Why? Why is that? Why does that work here? Because wherever you find wisdom, you will find a spirit of self-sacrifice. You'll find it in a marriage. You'll find it in a family. You'll find it in a church. You'll find it in a community. Wherever you find wisdom, you will find the spirit of self-sacrifice. I guess I've kind of become fond of you people. Because I don't preach this way to just anybody. I want excellence for you. I'm going to close with this. Former President Jimmy Carter tells of a time when as a naval officer, he applied for the nuclear submarine program And Admiral Hyman Rickover was the one to interview him. It was the first time he had ever met Rickover. He said they sat in a large room by themselves for more than two hours. Uh, Rickover had said that Carter could talk about anything he chose. He said he picked the topics he knew most about. And then Rickover began asking him questions as... Uh, and he soon realized that he knew very little about anything. He always looked me right into my eyes, and he never smiled. 
I was saturated with cold sweat. Finally, he asked me a question, and I thought I could redeem myself. He said, how did you stand in your class at the Naval Academy? My chest welled with pride. Sir, I stood 59th in a class of 820, and I sat back to wait for the congratulations, which never came. Instead, a question. Did you do your best? I started to say, yes, sir. But I remembered who I was talking to. No, sir. I didn't always do my best. He looked at me for a long time and then turned his chair around to end the interview. He asked me a question which I was unable to answer and I will never forget. Why not?